Welcome to Human Circus. People often like to say that in sports they pull for the underdog. Maybe it's boxing, and you're desperately hoping an apparent mismatch will become something more interesting, or that the clearly anticipated and carefully planned narrative will be overturned entirely. Or maybe it's more of a team sport, and there's a particularly arrogant franchise you'd like to see end their season in disappointment, or at least be forced to put on a bit of a show before the coronation. But it might be different if you found yourself parachuted into the A-side's locker room, if you shared in their celebrations, their triumphs, and their broader culture, too. If they told their stories to you, and if you maybe developed an appreciation for where they'd come from and why, and of how they came to occupy this place at the top, and all that made them champions. Maybe you wouldn't be so keen to see them knocked off. That is, in a sense, the position Marco Polo found himself in. He was there, at the summer palace of an undefeated champion who'd lost little in the way of confidence over a long and successful career, and he seems to have settled into the culture there, to have heard their stories and their songs. He'd picked up the origin account and the anecdotes, and he'd seen the highlight reel. He'd spent some time, some solid years, embedded there, and he'd gotten a bit of a sense of why they'd succeeded. He'd found them at their most glorious and he could not have imagined how it would ever have been otherwise. Little wonder, then, that Marco wasn't too interested in upsets. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus. If you haven't yet, please do rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It helps me out, and it secures a steady stream of medieval travelers in your direction. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about, a question about something that's come up already, or just want to say hi, then you can do so by way of my new and shiny website at humancircuspodcast.com, where you can find any and all Human Circus-related material. I'll be posting some new writing there also, some previews of upcoming topics, and perhaps a few other things too, along with episodes and sources, etc. So please do come by and check it out. Asks and invitations aside, let's get back to the story. Last episode, we saw the three polos extricate themselves from their Venetian home and the delays posed by papal elections, and we made our way to Acre, up to Lesser Armenia, and east onto the summer palace of Kublai Khan at Shangdu, with some pauses on the way to talk assassins and priest kings. We left off with some questions about the polo's time in China and the creation of the text itself. And I must admit that I won't be answering those questions yet today, because we also left off with the Khan's very warm welcome of the youngest polo and the idea of a friendship to come. And that's what we're on to here. Marco's glowing depiction of Kublai Khan and general enthusiasm for the whole Mongol imperial project. And I should note that for convenience, I am for now going to be saying Marco here when I talk about the voice of the text, rather than the Marco Polo author, or Rusticello, the man generally credited with doing the actual writing. But that's an issue for later on. For now, let's talk about Marco's new best friend, the Khan of Khans. 
I have in my notes here a section simply marked off as the wonderful wonderfulness of the con, and that should give you some idea of the kind of five-star reviews which he gets in the polo text. The con is introduced as Lord of Lords, who in respect to number of subjects, extent of territory, and amount of revenue, surpasses every sovereign that has heretofore been or that is now in the world. And there's more buttering up to come, that Kublai is brave and daring in action, and considered to be the most able and successful commander that ever led the Mongols to battle, that his limbs are well formed, and in his whole figure there is a just proportion, that his complexion is fair, and occasionally suffused with red, like the bright tint of the rose, which adds some grace to his countenance. His eyes are black and handsome, his nose is well-shaped and prominent. Just a great guy, was the Khan. And he was not merely a brave and handsome fellow, either. The Khan, we are told, was remarkably generous, acting with admirable and astonishing liberality towards the poor, providing grain and cloth for those families who needed it, and adored by all. And if that wasn't enough, in an old Mongol Khan ploy, he claimed Christian sympathies, too. It was only that these idolaters around him demonstrated the strength of their religion so ably, and if the Pope were only to have sent those hundred men who could refute their arguments, if the power and effectiveness of Christianity were only to be demonstrated, well, he was very much on their side, really. We see Kublai on the hunt, on rather large-scale hunts, borne about by up to four elephants in a beautifully carved wooden litter, lined inside with cloth of gold and outside with the fur of lions. His twelve best falcons and twelve favorites of his officers accompany him, and when a bird is sighted, he lifts the curtains and orders the release of his falcons, looking on with delight from his couch as they overpower their prey. And he whiles away the day this way, before retiring to his camp, a massive array of tents and pavilions to house the nobility, the ladies of his court, the guards, and ten thousand falconers, ten thousand really just meaning a lot, with all that would have been needed to accompany them. We see Kublai in his grand hall, enjoying a great feast with his empress at his left, and eldest son at his right, blood relatives at lower tables, and then further out, lesser officers lower down, and more still seated on the floor waiting outside, hoping to make their petition. There is wine and mare's milk without end, and there is such abundance of food that even Marco here allows himself a, a rare and soft critique of the Khan's ways, deeming them excessive. At his signal, the Khan is served by officials with their faces veiled, so that their breath will not trouble his food or drink, figures who immediately withdraw three paces to prostrate themselves. Music plays as he eats and drinks rendering the act momentous, that of a god eating from their table. And when the eating is done, the tables are cleared to make room for jesters, jugglers, and gymnasts, amusing all until the night is done, and the company make their stumbling exit, the strict rule not to touch the threshold on the way, momentarily relaxed to account for those too heavily affected by alcohol to avoid it. We see Kublai at his birthday party, a great festival, He's a September baby, apparently, and he appears dressed all in gold, with the nobility and officers all similarly dressed, some ornamented with precious stones and pearls, if less grandly so than the Khan himself. He receives gifts from all over his realm, 
precious metals, stones, and cloths. There are parades of richly adorned elephants, and of camels too, and sometimes a lion is led forward, specially trained to prostrate himself before the Khan, in a clear demonstration of his absolute dominance over even the most wild and powerful manifestations of nature. And we see Kublai at war. We see it in detail with the rebellion of Nyan, a prince of sorts and ruler of four provinces. We read that Nyan was moved by the power he had accumulated, and a certain amount of youthful arrogance too, to become his own master and to overthrow the Khan. And why not, you might think? The Khan had, after all, won his throne by force of arms and was fair game. Nyan reached out first to Kaidu, head of the House of Ogadai and lord of the Chagatayad territory, seeking his assistance, and Kaidu, ever up for opposing Kublai in all things, agreed, promising to contribute 100,000 horsemen to the effort. But such large-scale arrangements were not so quickly or quietly made. And before they could properly begin, Kublai had heard, and he had acted. In some sources, he sent his foremost general to investigate, and Nyan revealed his treacherous and deceitful nature by hosting the general at a feast and then failing in his attempt to trick and trap the general, who escaped. According to Marco, the Khan mustered what men were within ten days' journey, and came up with 360,000 horse and 100,000 foot. Obviously absurd quantities, which apparently included his falconers and domestic servants. Maybe this indicated that he was indeed grabbing up whatever troops he could find quickly, before more extensive preparations could alert his enemy, and were still, allow Kaidu's forces to unite with Nyan's. But, by domestic servants, the text likely means the Keshig, something between a personal guard and civil service not just a case of grabbing up the butler and the cook and getting out there. Kublai's army moved quickly, coming close to Nyan's without the enemy's knowledge, coming so close that only a range of hills separated them, and still the one side did not know the other to be there, still did not know even as their enemies camped for two days and waited, as the Khan consulted his astrologers for the proper time to strike. Then one morning, when he was told his victory was assured, he did strike. His men poured down into the plain, and only then did Nyan awake to their presence. He lamented that the connection with Kaidu hadn't been achieved sooner, and, I can only assume, that he and his commanders had completely failed to secure a basic awareness of their surroundings. Perhaps they thought themselves to be safe there, in their base of operations, while their target sat comfortably ignorant in the luxury of his palace. But no, the target was here, now, approaching them in person in a large wooden castle, flying the sun and moon standard, bristling with bowmen, and borne on the backs of four elephants, their bodies covered in hardened leather and gold cloth. An infinite number of wind instruments sounded then, and cymbals and drums, and such singing that it was wonderful to hear. And then they closed, first by arrow, then by lance, sword, and mace, until the piles of horses and men were high enough that it became difficult for the two sides to advance upon one another. So it went, from morning to noon, undecided. But at some point Nyan saw the threat of being surrounded, and in attempting his escape, he was taken and brought before the Khan. Death was quickly arranged, wrapped in a carpet, so that his noble blood would not spill beneath the sky. 
and with its surviving supporters pledging their loyalty to Kublai, that was an end to things. The text plays it all for glory, celebrating the special occasion which saw Kublai Khan go out in person to meet a military challenge long after he'd relaxed into his role as emperor and handed over the bulk of such responsibilities to his sons and generals. But the story carries a bit of a double-edged message. Marco is, as always, here trumpeting the greatness of the Genghisid dynasty, the unifying power of its claim to the conquest of the world. However, for all this grandness and Marco's talk of a ruler who surpassed all others, in some respects, Kublai did not even surpass his Mongol Khan forebears. Yes, he would gain pretty vast parts of China, but he lacked in Central Asia the Chagatai Khanate lands. In the West, the Golden Horde or Kipchak Khanate, and centered around present-day Iran, the Ilkhanate. He lacked things which even his older brother Monka had possessed. So even as Marco doesn't break stride in his narrative of unbroken greatness from Genghis Khan all the way up through to Kublai, the Nyan story serves as a little reminder that something had changed. That process of crumbling imperial unity, which we followed through the To See the Mongols series, was reaching its conclusion by this point. And of the different Mongol Khanates, only the Ilkhans would continue to offer any kind of allegiance, and that only somewhat performative. As a leader ascended to rule the Ilkhanate, they would look back east for legitimization and approval. But they wouldn't be taking orders, they wouldn't be marching to the assistance of Kublai and its descendants or participating in the kind of vast panfamilial invasion that had seen princes of all the Genghisid branches slicing into Central Europe and Southern Syria. Kublai Khan was still the founding emperor of the Yuan dynasty in China, and that was still something pretty substantial. However, he was not really the Khan of Khans and the Lord of Lords, not anymore. And, despite Marco's description to the contrary, he was aging into obesity and alcoholism, and he stood only with great pain. Not that any of this halted Marco in heaping on the praise, for Kublai, or for the Mongols more generally. The Franciscans who'd traveled to the Khans before him had expressed disgust or irritation at a broad range of Mongol characteristics and behaviors, but not so with Marco. He found much to like. He describes the Mongols' bravery in battle and in danger of all kinds, their ability to survive in any circumstance. No people upon earth, he claims, can surpass them in fortitude under difficulties. They are perfectly obedient to their chiefs. And it goes on. The women are praised for their decency of conduct, their love and duty to their husbands, and the men for their loyalty to their wives, whether they be few or many. And this sort of thing wasn't entirely new. Those friars before him had come to some of the same conclusions, but they'd also followed up with disapproval and even rancorous hostility. Friar Carpine had eventually concluded that the Mongols' evil habits were so numerous they could hardly be set down, while Friar William declared his willingness to preach war against them as best as he could the world over. Now, Marco does admit that the Mongols' disposition was cruel, but he was otherwise overwhelmingly complimentary of these people, most perfect in marriage and perfect in war, patient through hardship, and loyal to their leaders. When he describes Genghis Khan's initial conquests, he even attributes to the Khan such an inclination towards 
and I'm quoting here, justice and other virtues, that wherever he went, he found the people disposed to submit to him, and to esteem themselves happy when admitted to his protection and favor. He makes it sound like terror tactics, large-scale butchery, and military conquest would have been entirely unnecessary to achieve expansion. Only the realization of the tremendous goodness to be found in the Supreme Khan's affectionate embrace. But that had been some time ago, hadn't it? It had been in the first years of the 13th century, when Genghis had become Genghis and unified the neighboring clans under his rule. And now that century was almost over. This brings us to Marco's one real critique of the Mongols. And it's an interesting one. That the Mongols he came to know were not the Mongols who had spread across Asia and spilled triumphantly beyond its limits. They had, he says, started to forsake their own laws and to take up the customs and habits of the idol worshippers and the Muslims. They'd started to settle in among the peoples they were supposed to have conquered, to enjoy life among them, to soften and become corrupted by civilization, to lose the characteristics that had made them so uniquely capable of conquest in the first place. It's a theme Marco returns to later, though he doesn't make the connection himself, in spinning a bit of a fairy tale of the Southern Song's demise. Their ruler, we are told, was kind, generous, and just. But too safe for his own good, too secure behind his walls, and too given to whiling away his hours in the royal park with the thousand most beautiful women he could find. And that, we are told, led to his flight by ship before the Khan's approaching armies. That softness, that fleshiness of his character, bringing the entire empire to destruction. As a historical depiction of the Southern Song's final days, it's been roundly dismissed. But the way it's presented in contrast with the Khan's character is pretty fascinating. Quote, Very different from the temper and habits of the Song ruler were those of Kublai Khan, emperor of the Mongols, whose whole delight consisted in thoughts of warlike nature, of the conquest of countries, and of extending his renown or so we are told. But the depictions of these two rulers have more similarities than he lets on. After all, in the Marco Polo text, we see Kublai at feasts, celebrations, and at about his most active on the backs of elephants, peeking out through the curtains to admire the ferocity of one of his falcons from the comforts of a couch. Marco says of this song ruler that he ignored the world of war and weapons for the company of beautiful women, but the Khan had an entire infrastructure in place to facilitate exactly that, scouting them from a particular region, and then bringing them in for periods of training and tryouts, which Marco tells us all about. It seems an inconsistency, his apparent admiration for Kublai, while seeing something similar as rot at the root of a dynasty's collapse. And I don't believe he is here trying to make a subtle go of predicting the decline and fall of the Khan's empire either, that apparent admiration of his for Kublai and the Genghisid legacy appears to be very real and quite untroubled by doubts as to its future. And, admittedly, the Mongols could not in the end be accused of forgetting all things to do with war, even if their rulers did spend their fair share of time in the park. The whole idea of the Mongols experiencing a kind of degenerative gentrification as they got used to the life of their new neighbors makes for an interesting point but not because it's unique. What Marco was touching on was the sort of traditionalist challenge that may have informed Nyan's rebellion, likely motivated Kublai's brother in their civil war, 
and was at the root of the challenge Kaidu long presented to Kublai's rule, and even that of his successor. In other words, it's the kind of attack that Kublai fought off throughout his entire reign, militarily and culturally. What's interesting here is that Marco would voice it at all, an uncharacteristic note of criticism of Kublai's Mongols in China, when he makes no such acknowledgement of this very idea as a powerful one in propelling inter-Mongol conflict, of moving Nyan or others to rebel. He's very much the voice of the establishment, spinning tales that likely echoed those of court historians and entertainers. So quite possibly then, when he worries that the Mongols are being corrupted, He's expressing not only the contention of those who rebelled against Kublai's rule, but also an anxiety that was present at the court of the Yuan ruler himself. At the end of August, the milk of the Khan's special herd of white mares was sprinkled on the ground, and Marco and the rest of that court followed his beloved Khan to Kublai's capital. Remember that their first meeting was in Shangdu, his summer retreat. It was still a pretty grand affair, and still really quite new. But Kublai had needed something different. He no longer wanted something Mongol and Chinese, as he had in the past, when he'd ordered the construction of Shangdu. He'd wanted something entirely Chinese, as the site and symbol of a new and Chinese empire, like those which had governed before. For that, he'd looked to an old imperial home, to Zhangdu, the Jin dynasty capital which the armies of Genghis had destroyed in 1215 and he'd ordered construction to begin there, where an overgrown parkland surrounded a beautiful lake. That's where Marco, the Khan, and thousands of others were bound, and over the course of some twenty years, he likely made the trip often, but he doesn't describe the route in any great detail. Elsewhere, there is drama to be found in the act of travel. There is a place where tangled piles are made of the bones of wild goats, to mark the way when the path is too covered in snow to see. And there is another, a desert, where voices are heard, malicious spirits which lure stragglers away from their parties, and to their doom with familiar-sounding calls, and where the sudden sight of phantasmal brigands causes the unwary to flee in terror and become terminally lost in the dunes. By comparison, this grand procession from summer home to imperial capital was evidently less exciting. However, as a logistical feat, it is really quite impressive, involving an army of human and animal life to be settled and fed at established towns along the way. At least one of them, an old imperial stronghold itself, the refurbished skeleton of yet another empire. And the journey to the capital had other significance too, as a parade to the new center of the Yuan-Mongol world, more than 1,300 kilometers from Karakorum, their ancestral home. Marco records the name of Kublai's new capital as Kambaluk, a decent enough attempt at Kambalik, literally the Khan city, but it was also known as Daidu, and if you looked for it now on a map, you'd be looking for Beijing. As Marco entered it, he described another nested city, like Shangdu, with the palace within an inner city, within another city, walls within walls within walls. For the construction, Kublai had again turned to his advisor Liu Bingzhong, the Shangdu architect, as well as the ingenious water engineer Guo Shoujing, and possibly also a Central Asian Muslim named Ilktiar al-Din. A temple sprang up dedicated to Kublai's ancestors and granting Genghis Khan a Chinese title. There was a Buddhist temple too, a white pagoda which still can be seen, an astronomical observatory, 
a green mount to which the Khan ordered the most handsome trees in his realms to be brought and replanted, and a pavilion at its peak. Bridges, lakes, and gardens, abundant wildlife and game in the parklands, and fish, swans, and aquatic birds in the waters, and the palace. The palace was a single story, but high-roofed, and covered in tiles of different colors, of red, green, azure, and violet, raised on marble and accessible on all four sides by marble staircases. Within were halls, chambers, and apartments, all beautifully decorated with gilding and carvings of dragons, warriors, beasts, and war. This was where Kublai had founded an imperial Chinese dynasty, where, again with the help of Liu Bingzhong, he had taken the name Yuan to refer to that dynasty, a word carrying the senses of source, of origin, of prime mover, of spring, of eldest, and of much more besides. Mongol touches were present, the ermine skins in the Khan's sleeping chambers, the gares or tents in the parks, the soil of the Mongol steppes for the royal altar. But this was recognizably a Chinese imperial city, its buildings, rituals, and institutions an open appeal on the part of its ruler. Marco doesn't only linger over this palace and the greatness of its occupant, though. He also turns to the outer city and the world of its inhabitants and in his telling, reveals a discontent among them under Kublai's rule, if admittedly one he blames on a Muslim minister. He tells us that Kanbalik was a city of astrologers, a city of 5,000 of them, and that these astrologers, based on their charting of the heavenly bodies, would make predictions about the future, that in one month there would be lightning and heavy rains, or in another, sickness, discord, and conspiracy. They would write their predictions up on small squares and sell them to those desiring a look at the future, with the most proven forecasters being the most honored and the most sought out. Or they would provide more specific readings for the beginnings of any great venture in war, business, travel, personal life, or the development of a new capital. It seems that one of the readings offered as to Kublai's new capital spoke of rebelliousness and treachery in the city. And this only further fed a suspicion in the Khan's mind, which already had some history behind it. Even back before Kublai Khan had been Great Khan, there had been a rebellion in northern China, led by a local leader who had fought on behalf of the Mongols against the Song. More importantly, it was assisted by one of Kublai's longtime Confucian advisors, who he'd had to execute. And this betrayal really seems to have stung quite aside from the fact that there would naturally be an abundance of uprisings in the occupied Song territory, many have pointed to a growing distrust of the Chinese on Kublai's part, a distrust that would impact his policies moving forward. So, even as he moved to make himself familiar to the Chinese by taking up a number of his advisors' suggestions, by adapting in ritual and law and institution and material culture, he refused to take other steps, such as continuing with the traditional civil service exams. He recognized that doing so would have limited his officials to those with a demonstrated familiarity with the Confucian texts. And he didn't want that. Where possible, he was actually going to look to govern China with administrators from elsewhere. With all this in mind, Kublai kept a pretty tight grip on the inhabitants of his new capital. A great bell rang out every night, and from then on, one had to remain inside or find yourself swept up by patrols, with your fate to be decided on in the morning. Only a dire emergency would excuse going out, and then you had to carry a light. 
It must have been an eerie place to be of an evening, with all its people sealed up inside, the odd few dashing out on urgent matters, or scurrying silently as they could in the darkness, avoiding the roving guards who moved through the streets in groups of thirty to forty. It was an occupation, and it was the scene of building displeasure under the governance of Ahmed, one of the powerful Council of Twelve that saw to the Emperor's affairs, and one who apparently was particularly favored by Kublai. Ahmed is described as a crafty and bold man. He filled public offices to further his own interests, and extracted presents from those he'd seen appointed. He manipulated, bribed, and threatened to gain the most beautiful women as wives and otherwise. He brought about the execution of any who opposed him, and he and his sons generally seem to have reigned as tyrants beneath the Khan's nose, massively enriching themselves over two decades. That was the picture Marco offered, at least, but Ahmed appears in other sources, too, and he was not, or at least not only, the entirely self-interested predator we see in Marco's sketch. Born near present-day Tashkent, capital of Uzbekistan, he was Kublai's finance minister, the man in charge of the Khan's tax collection and financial policies, and thus likely an unpopular fellow at the best of times. And this, this was an expensive time. There were the intermittent incursions from Kaidu to be dealt with on the Central Asian border, support required for the Korean vassal, the conquest of Myanmar, the disastrous overseas adventures in Japan, all of which had to be paid for, in addition to non-military costs such as massive new construction and infrastructure projects. Ahmed was the one responsible for squeezing the fruit, and Kublai was a ruler who needed a lot of juice. And that may partially explain the evisceration Ahmed receives in the Yuan sources. And it's worth noting that he's not the only villainous financial administrator to be found there. He appears as a man who abused the very economic policies he had created for his own profit, whose appointments were driven by nepotism, and who leaned heavily on false accusations in order to undermine political opponents and see them retired or executed. On the other hand, in Persian sources such as Rashid al-Din, Ahmed gets a much kinder portrayal, as someone who held his office with honor for nearly 25 years, who encouraged trade. And, if he had brought his supporters and family members into offices around him, well, that was perfectly natural, and indeed necessary to see his policies enacted in the face of a great deal of personal hostility. Maybe he was simply a successful player for power, whose successes and position as a foreign-born finance minister over a conquered people made him hateful in the eyes of those who felt the effects of his decisions and those he outmaneuvered at court. Of course, there's no question of such nuances in Marco's dramatic telling. As he has it, the Khan had been bewitched, had actually fallen victim to magic spells that had brought him under his cunning minister's sway, and rendered him blind to the man's corruption, abuses, and excess. He goes on to say that the people of the city waited for a chance to deal with Ahmed, and that two conspirators in particular were waiting. Marco identifies them as Vanku and Chenku, leaders of men, either militarily or as civil officers, while from others we see them as Wang Zhu and Gao. The former was a military commander who'd found himself a brass club, which he was saving just for Ahmed, and the latter was a Buddhist monk and magician, who'd apparently once murdered somebody to fake his own suicide after one of his magic tricks had proven less than magical. This delightful pair chose a time when Kublai was away from the city, 
gone early to his summer retreat on the night of April 10th, 1282, and they went into action to assassinate Ahmed, and then send it word to their contacts that the uprising should begin, and that all with beards should be killed. There are variations on the plan, but they all revolve around faking the arrival of Kublai's son, Zhenjin. In the Marco version, Wang Zhu and Gao sneak into Zhenjin's palace and light up one of his apartments before having a messenger sent to Ahmed, telling him that the Khan's heir, who Ahmed feared and respected, had arrived suddenly in the city and required his presence. All seemed to go well, but they didn't know that Ahmed, in hurrying through the city, had bumped into a commander of the guard, who was bemused to hear that Zhenjin should have come so secretly that he hadn't heard of it himself, and followed after Ahmed. So when the target entered that lit-up room and perceived a seated figure, he prostrated himself before it, and Gao stepped forward and cut off his head. But then the commander stepped forward too from the doorway, and he raised the alarm with a cry of treason, and he shot Wang Zhu where he sat. In other tellings, the conspirators also came at night, but with a group of followers, presenting themselves as the prince and his escort, killing one set of guards who saw through their disguise, and tricking another into escorting them to the palace. They called Ahmed forth, and here Wang Zhu got to use that brass club of his, killing Ahmed with a single blow to the head before being seized in the chaos that followed. There was to be no revolution after the killing. Instead, there was a swift roundup of conspirators. When he heard what had happened, an enraged Kublai promptly ordered the execution of all involved, and then he sent an officer to look into the matter. Marco has it that this officer reported back with information that enraged the Khan again that this was when evidence of Ahmed's use of magic came to light, that Ahmed's body was disinterred and torn apart by dogs, that his sons were flayed alive, and that even his fellow Muslims were punished for his deeds. Some as his colleagues or appointees, but others simply as his co-religionists, with new laws at least temporarily imposed on their practices, and new restrictions. And in other versions, too, it's in the aftermath where Ahmed was really vilified, his home was searched, and suspicious quantities of wealth were uncovered, along with a pair of tanned human skins and, the real clincher, a jewel that had specifically been given to the Khan. But as others have asked before me, why was this incriminating jewel so easily discovered? Why did his family not get rid of it or hide it elsewhere? Did they not know of its origin, or had it been planted on them by Ahmed's enemies? Of course, it's difficult to know at this point. The anecdote of the treacherous minister is an important one in the Polo text. It hints at a lot of issues in Kublai's reign, at financial difficulty, corruption, infighting among his advisors and officials, problems caused when he was seen to privilege one religious group over another. The idea that, try as he might to present as a Chinese emperor, he was still one of the ones with beards. And the list goes on. But it's also important for another reason, too. It includes the claim that Marco Polo was present in the city for all of this, there in the capital in 1282, when Ahmed, fairly or unfairly, met his violent end. And this is significant because the text rarely gives any such indication. You can mark them all down as you're reading through it, but you're not left with much. 
Just a few snippets, really, outside of the prologue. You read at one point that he was ill for some time and was cured by the clean air in the mountains of Badakhshan, the northeast of modern-day Afghanistan. Or at another, that he and the older polos spent a year in a Tangut city, for reasons he declines to expand on. He says he spent a lot of time at the old Song Dynasty capital at Hangzhou, known by the song as Linan and referred to as Kinsai by Marco. And in the relative abundance of detail, one can easily imagine he spent some time there. But his doings generally have remained a mystery, a topic still of contention and disagreement, with some even claiming that he never actually went to China at all. And that's what I'm going to get into next time. I'd originally thought to do so in this episode, but I wanted to really focus here on Marcos Kublai, on this picture of a Khan caught in a curious moment governing over a conquered population that vastly outnumbered his own forces, and doing so, at the direction of his advisors, by making himself more familiar to that population, but also clearly uncomfortable with going too far, and all the while alienating many in the Mongol world with the moves which he did make. And I wanted to focus on this idea of Marco himself, not just as some kind of transcontinental flaneur, but perhaps to be thought of as more of a mouthpiece for empire and a trumpeter for Kublai Khan as the bearer of Genghis's dynastic legacy. So next time, the doings of Marco Polo in China as governor, ambassador, builder of siege engines, outright liar, or something else entirely. That'll be the story next episode. Human Circus will return.